This is Talking Urology. Welcome to a Talking Urology conference highlight from ANZ UP 2019 in Brisbane, proudly supported by an educational grant from Ipsen. In this ANZ UP conference highlight, Andrew Weikart chats with Betsy Plymack, Chief of the Division of Genitourinary Medical Oncology at Fox Chase Cancer Centre in the US. We begin with Betsy's best bet being bladder. She talks about the future potential role of genetic mutations in urothelial cancer. Can they predict response to treatments or even decide which treatments you should use? Then they move on to kidney being king and discuss the use of the new immuno-oncology agents in metastatic kidney cancer. What are the second line options and how do we measure success of treatments? Keep a close ear out for the emerging concept of treatment-free survival as the yardstick for these new immuno-oncology agents. I'm Andrew Weikart, medical oncologist, and I'm delighted to be here today with Elizabeth Plimak, medical oncologist from Fox Chase in Philadelphia. She's been here at ANZUP talking with us about bladder cancer and kidney cancer. Betsy, thanks for coming. Ah, thanks for having me. So bladder cancer, you've spoken to us about your collaborations that led you to make some discoveries about how to treat bladder cancer. Can you let us know what the key points of that talk was? Sure. So part of the message from this meeting is making connections, which I love because I think the field is moving away from individual science towards large group collaborations. And so part of the story I told was how our group came together with Jonathan Rosenberg and Ellie Van Allen's group and others and sort of snowballed into bigger projects, greater ideas, more sharing of information, sharing of samples that led to ultimately a stronger outcome. I think the story we're trying to tell together is that DNA repair damage alterations in bladder cancer specimens prior to TRBT or at TRBT prior to new adjuvant chemotherapy predict or can be a powerful tool to predict response to chemotherapy. And so higher level validation is required, but all of our findings together and separately have led toward that conclusion. And so we hope to be able to advance that further through analysis of samples and randomized trials. So those mutations and genetic defects, what are they and are they ready for prime time for me to choose which patients should be given neoadjuvant chemotherapy? So that's a good question and there's no straightforward answer to either. So what are they? They're DNA damage alterations in tumor tissue is what they are. Various groups have defined them differently. Memorial has a clinical trial that hinges on a list from the literature. We have a clinical trial that hinges on the four that we validated together, ATM, RB1, FANC-C, and ERCC2. But both those trials are looking to predict patients who have exquisite sensitivity to new adjuvant chemotherapy and then, as part of a clinical trial, keep their bladder. So prime time, no, in the clinic, but we are leveraging these findings to develop trials for bladder sparing. So new adjuvant chemotherapy, it's a topic where the literature will show there's a benefit in delivering new adjuvant chemotherapy, but there's some heterogeneous practice out yes, there. Yes, yes. What are the barriers in your setting to delivering new adjuvant chemotherapy? So in our setting, there are very few because we work together so closely with urology. It's part of our practice. We've done research in the area. But in talking to folks in the community and internationally, it's an extra step. It's kind of easier to just sort of go straight to surgery. Chemotherapy is not fun. It is thought of as toxic. And for many patients, it is. And so I think these barriers have in the past really precluded patients from getting this. I think lately in the data that's been shown observationally, at least in the United States over time, is that uptake has been more robust as of late. But it's still one of those things. It takes a special patient to make it through all of that. 
Um, and some patients just can't. So you and I share something in common. I quite like accelerated MVAC or yeah, dose-dense yeah. MVAC. Yeah. And you've published extensively on your experience with that. So can you talk me through what the advantages are compared to delivering cisplatin and gemcitabine? One is our data used three cycles of dose-dense MVAC. We're done with chemotherapy in six weeks. It really meshes nicely with the OR scheduling. So a patient can be seen for a cystectomy, plan for the OR, and we can just kind of squeeze that chemotherapy in there. The toxicity data that's been published has been really on par with retrospective data sets of GEM-CIS. And the study that I'm really looking to to see how the toxicity differs is the COXIN trial that recently completed. The biomarker data was reported by Tom Flagg at ASCO. But we really want to see toxicity data. The efficacy was similar, which we sort of knew and suspected. Um, but quicker, less toxic has been our experience. Fantastic. So let's pivot to kidney cancer. Yeah. You're involved in many early phase one, two trials yes. of combination therapies. Yes. And nowadays, treating kidney cancer, um, there are exciting combinations that are based on some of that work. Yes. Can you talk us through the key points from the talk you gave this morning about which way the field's moving? So I think the field's definitely moving towards combination with a base eye of immunotherapy. So axitinib, pembrolizumab, or ipilimumab and nivolumab are the two that sort of rise to the top based on the overall survival data and the randomized trials. I think the issue then that happens is what do you do after those therapies? And we don't have good trials looking at that. I'll present in my next talk an intergroup trial on the pedigree trial coming out of Duke, group of investigators through the intergroup that is seeking to parse that, but it will be difficult because there's so many downstream options. So the recent data coming from those two large trials, Ipinevo and the Pembro with either Excitinib or Avelumab with Excitinib, right. was really interesting in that it showed that response rates could increase and you showed that you know two out of three of those studies have reported improved overall survival. Right. So here's my question. Yeah. Which patient at the moment in 2019 should not receive immunotherapy in first-line treatments? So I think there probably is a subset of those patients. I don't know that we've defined them well, but they tend to be favorable risk, generally, in my experience, defined as the indolent growth pattern, which is part of the favorable risk definition. And Dave McDermott and colleagues published some very interesting gene expression right, data right. suggesting there may be a biomarker of benefit to angiogenesis yeah. therapy coming out of the Atezobev versus Sunanib study. So I think we're kind of closing in on a definition, both biologically and clinically, of the type of patient who may not need I.O. up front or may never benefit from I.O. That second question, I think, is a lot more diffuse and unknown. But I think we'll get there, and there probably will be a set of patients to find who can get away with low-dose, single-agent, VEGF, TKI. Complete response rates, 9% in Ipinevo, and if you firmly believe in I.O., I.O., you yeah. cling to the durable long-term, um, the complete response rate, and it being slightly less at 6% in the Pembro yeah. Axidinib data. Do you believe that that's a, a really important figure that we should base our treatment decisions on in patients with intermediate and poor prognostic? I'm so glad you asked me that question because what I like to emphasize is that CR is a construct of the RESIST way of measuring tumor volume and response. We have all had patients who are PRs, but when we go to resect what's left, it's SCAR. So there are certainly PRs who are probably cured by treatment, and there are CRs who then later recur. So that figure is not what I would look to. What I would look to is Dave McDermott's data on treatment-free survival. Right. I think that's more relevant. How can we get patients to a place where their disease is treated such that they don't need subsequent therapy and are still alive and doing well? And that is not measured by CR, or PFS, or OS. It's sort of its own thing. And looking at that in the long term for all these studies is going to be critical. So 
In terms of patient walks in, intermediate prognosis, tomorrow in clinic, are you an Ipinevo or a TKIIO kind of person? Or does so, that vary with your discussion <laughs> with the patient? I am an XE-Pembro person based on the overall survival data and based on the fact that it seems to cross different groups more reliably. I also believe in that combination because of our prior experience with nivolumab, with sunitinib, where we have a collection of those patients in our clinic doing beautifully. So I even though we haven't seen the long-term data on that combination from the phase three, we have some from the phase one, two, that looks very good. 87% of patients alive at two years. I mean, that's pretty impressive. And leaning on that older data, I do believe we're going to see long-term durable responses and benefit to that combination. So that's my go-to right now, as of today. (laughs) Fantastic. And we'll finish with one further question then. Just managing side effects of immune toxicity. The IO-IO combination has its own range of side effects. Right. Do you find that they're difficult to manage for yourself now that you're familiar with that sort of pattern of side effects? Do you still get stumped or now are you sort of familiar (laughs) enough with colitis that it's sort of like a reflex to treat? It's always disappointing when someone gets one of these autoimmune events. It's always almost always a hospitalization. I will say in the early days, it was also this racking your brain through all your internal medicine knowledge, looking for what could be autoimmune versus what could be something else. And that part has become more straightforward. It's a little more definitive to me when I see it, whether it's immune related or not. A lot of people will ask with the VEGF IO combinations, diarrhea, how do you determine it? And the answer to that is you hold both drugs. If it goes away after three days, it's the exitinib. If it doesn't, then start steroids, it's the pembrolizumab. And so these kinds of things are things that have evolved over time. But there's definitely an expertise that comes with it, not just for medical oncology, but for everyone in the hospital that cares for these patients across the disciplines. Yeah, well, thank you so much for joining with us today and sharing your expertise both at the conference and in these sort of chats. It's been fantastic having you here in Australia. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. It's been great. Talking Urology at Anzab, proudly supported by Ibsen. 